Will you please turn with me in your Bibles this morning to the 20th chapter of the Gospel according to Mark, where we will be focusing in on verses 1 through 16. That is Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16, and you can find that passage beginning on page 966 in your pew Bibles. This morning I would like for us to look at just one of the parables of Jesus as one final reflection on the life lived before the face of Almighty God. And then, Lord willing, just a little bit of housekeeping, we will be returning then to the Gospel of Mark uh, together after next Sunday. So we will have Easter Sunday. The following Sunday we will be returning to our look together at the Gospel according to Mark. We have looked at a few of these kingdom type parables before, dealing with things like the inestimable value of the treasure of the kingdom of God. And in particular, we've looked at the message of the kingdom, which we know is, of course, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this parable that is before us this morning is what we would consider to be a parable of salvation. It stands in a category along with other parables, like the parable of the lost sheep, The parable of the lost coin and, of course, the very well-known parable that I'm sure we're all familiar with of the prodigal son. All these parables deal with the common theme of our salvation as well as the deep and abiding love of Almighty God for his people. And interestingly, they were, all three of them, brought into the light as the direct result of Jesus' attack upon the self-righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus regularly combated the notion that salvation was the result of our somehow working before the face of God, co-laboring somehow in concert with God or for God in order to bring about our own salvation. He was continually pointing his sheep to the fact that their salvation was born entirely out of the Father's deep and abiding love for us, and never the other way around. Such was the case with the parable of the prodigal son in the 15th chapter of the Gospel according to Luke. I know it's one we're familiar with. It's very rich in detail and in its innumerable applications for us as the declared children of our Heavenly Father, as the recipients of His never-ending love for us, who not only do fall into sin and wandering, but who also by our very natures, inherited from our father Adam, are corrupt, are sinful. We can do nothing other than marvel at the incomprehensible love of God for His sheep, that is spelled out for us continually in the pages of the Bible. It should, beloved, and in fact it does, I hope, astound us. And it becomes yet another motivating factor in our life of service within God's kingdom. And in our lives of worship, live before Almighty God as our kings. Our lives lived quorum Deo. I want you to think for just a moment about the parable of the prodigal son. Like I said, I think we're all familiar enough with it. We see this love clearly illustrated in the love of the father who rejoiced at not simply the return of his son, 
but the return of his son bearing the gift of genuine repentance. You see, his son did not just simply run out of money and food and then come back to his father demanding another handout, pointing to his own value as a son and an heir, telling his father to give him more because it was his right as a son. No, in fact, he came back with an entirely different frame of mind from what he had when he left. If you're familiar with the story, you remember that when this son left, he asked for what was his. He demanded what was his by right. He said to his father, give me what is mine so I can go out and do my own thing. Make my own mark. But when he returned, he said, Father, I do not deserve to be your son. Disown me. And let me serve you for the rest of my life as but a servant of your household, a hired hand. He came back in true humility saying, Father, I have sinned against you and against heaven. He was willing to leave behind his once vaulted and cherished independence and autonomy from his father and he was going to live under his father even if he only had the status of of slave. He did not simply just feel sorrow for his sin against his father in heaven, but he turned away from it. Gladly laying aside his claim upon his own independence, living as a servant grateful for the opportunity to serve under a gracious and loving master. The prodigal is one who has recognized his folly And who by the grace of God has turned from it. And of course there is also the older brother in that parable. And again there's much application there as well. The older brother served the father as well. And he did it out of very different motives. And he immediately pointed to the folly of the father. And the injustice of the father. In giving anything at all to this reckless worthless younger son. He told the father, look at, his, look at my life of impeccable service and yet you've given me nothing at all. This brother even refuses to go in and join the celebration even though his brother was dead and was now alive. He will not and he cannot rejoice with this brother of his. And so he's exposed for what he is. Self-made, self-sufficient, and self-righteous. He saw his brother wasting wealth and he was more concerned about the final state of that wealth than he was about the final state or the well-being of his brother. And Jesus again and again points out the heinousness of self-righteousness as he teaches these crowds that have begun to gather in around him daily. And to the one who has, his, who has had his sin exposed and who is grieved by that sin, it is sweet music to his ears to hear that even though he was dead in sins and trespasses, Jesus Christ came to give him life despite his failure. He recognizes who and what he is. He has been exposed and so he's no longer trying to hide his own shameful condition. 
but to the one who is living by the merits of his or her own work. These words burn the ears. They injure pride. And ultimately, they are rebelled against in anger. It is a set of reoccurring themes in these parables. The helplessness of man, the love of Almighty God for those who are His, and the outright foolishness of self-righteousness. We see here those who have had their eyes open to their helplessness and who then by grace run into the open arms of their great shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lovingly carries them home, being distinguished from those who Look down their noses at the helpless. Those who trust in their own great strength. Those who trust the fact that their mighty service has somehow obligated God. Put God in their debt. As they run headlong the other way entirely towards a God of their own making. One who would never impose his sovereign will on man. One who acts as man earns his favor by his own feeble, so-called righteous works. And that theme, beloved, is exactly what is before us this morning as we look together at another well-known parable, the parable of the workers in the vineyard. So I'd like you to follow along as I read Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. Hear now the holy, infallible, inerrant word of God. For the kingdom of heaven, this is Jesus speaking, he says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said to them, You also go into the vineyard and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. Again, he went out about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did likewise. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and he found others standing idle. And he said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. And he said to them, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, you will receive. So when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, Call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. When those who came were hired about the eleventh hour, they received a denarius. But when the first came, they supposed they would receive more, and they likewise received a denarius. When they had received it, they complained against the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour. You have made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them and he said, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil? Because I am good. So the last will be first, and the first last. For many are called, but few are chosen. This is the word of our Lord. May he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, again, we're grateful this morning for the opportunity we have to come before and to sit before your word. We pray that you would clear our hearts and our minds this morning of the many things that distract us in this life. May we give our full attention to your word this morning and hearing that word through the power of your spirit. May we be transformed to live more and more for your glory and your glory alone. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. When Jesus taught to these multitudes that were gathering around him, we see in the pages of Scripture that often there was this reoccurring theme or there was a certain statement or at least a variation of a statement that was repeated again and again as he would continue to speak and teach. We have one of those statements in our text this morning. Jesus Jesus does not simply say it once, but in fact, he says it twice. It is the statement that he makes leading into this parable, and it is, of course, the statement that he uses then again at the conclusion of the parable. He uses it even in the middle of the parable. Prior to his telling of this parable, Jesus was asked a question by Peter. Jesus had just told his disciples of the difficulty that a rich man will have in entering into the kingdom of heaven. He said, in fact, that it would be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And when the disciples heard it, they wondered at this saying, and they began to ask one another, who then can be saved? But Peter immediately realized that they had walked away from everything in order to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Peter looks to Jesus and he says, Lord, what will our lot be? And Jesus tells them that there will indeed be blessing for those who have had to walk away from the things of this world in order to follow, follow him. He says in verse 29, in response to the question, that indeed everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children for my name's sake, He says, shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. And then immediately following that, we hear that often repeated phrase, those words in Christ's teaching in verse 30. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Then that serves as one sort of bookend statement, with the parable itself then in the middle, and the other bookend statement being verse 16 where Jesus repeats what he said, and he adds a bit to it. He says, so the last will be first, and the first last, for many are called, but few are chosen. We know that chosen means much more than just the order in which things happened. Beloved, we could get lost in that alone this morning, right? Before we even get to the parable, we know exactly what it is that Jesus is trying to make clear to those who are his about the character of the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, those who have set aside their own wants and desires, those who have put the kingdom, in a sense, above their own wants and desires, I would say it this way, those who have realized that the kingdom is their only want and desire. For them, there will be blessings in the life to come. The disciples will sit on the 12 thrones with the Lord, judging the tribes of Israel. 
There are those who have left behind their things, their desires. They will receive a hundredfold what they had given up. They will inherit the unfathomable blessings of eternal life. However, this is not where our Lord leaves it. He senses the underlying pride in Peter's question. The recognition that he and the others were in pretty good shape. Because they, of course, had left everything. Surely God would now be obligated to bless them. We're certainly not like the rich man, right? We've let go of everything and followed you, Jesus. And Jesus says, yes, you will be blessed. But understand, your greatness will come from something that is entirely different than just what you have done. In the kingdom of God, greatness is measured not simply by service and personal sacrifice, but by God-given humility. We see that throughout the Gospels, don't we? This idea of the first being last and the last being first. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled brought low. This is life in the kingdom of God. It's a sort of greatness formula repeated often by Jesus and it tells us much about the nature of the kingdom of God. Those who recognize the kingdom recognize both the greatness of the kingdom itself as well as their own absolute unworthiness to even be a part of it. Those will be great. In the kingdom. But those who come to the kingdom already great, legends in their own eyes, expecting the kingdom to just open up to them because of their mighty deeds, because of their own greatness, because of their own service, they are not fit to even serve within the kingdom of God. Do you understand? We see it lived out in Jesus' life, don't we? He humbled himself. He became obedient even to death, the death of the cross. And the parable illustrates this very principle for us beautifully. From the very beginning, it's clear who's doing what. And if we're not careful, we could miss it. Do you notice what happens here? The landowner went out looking for laborers. Do you see that? The laborers did not come to him. They did not seek him out. They did not negotiate a contract for their labors. But he went out and he found them. And he told them what the wage would be. He'll pay them a denarius for a day's work. God's sovereignty in selecting the workers for his vineyard is evident from the outset. We have to take note of that. It's important. We're told nothing of the workers' special abilities, nothing of their skill sets, nothing even of their own propensity towards hard work. Simply that he came, he chose them, and he offered them both the work and the wage. And they readily accept. And so he sends them into his vineyard to work. Then again, the landowner goes out about the third hour and we're told that he hires more laborers. 
And he promises to give them what is right. And so they too go into the vineyard and they get to work. And he does it again and again. And then finally around the 11th hour, he goes out once again and he finds some men still standing idle in the marketplace. And he asks them, why are you idle? Why are you not working? And they tell him, we're only idle because no one has hired us. And so he hires them. And he sends them out as well. Now at the end of the day, he calls them all together and he pays them the agreed upon wages. And when those who had been there all day saw that the guys who had only worked a portion of the day were being paid a full denarius, they were hopeful that that meant that they who had borne the heat of the day, who had labored the longest, would be given more than was promised. Forgetting the generosity of the promise itself, They then became sorely disappointed as they came before the owner for their wages and find that they were being paid the same as those who only worked a small portion of the day. They grumbled against the owner and they pointed to the injustice of his dealings with them. And the owner says, I've done you no wrong. Did I not agree to pay you exactly what you were paid? If I want to be generous to these others, that's not injustice. It's generosity. So please, go your way in peace. Jesus again then ends the parable with the first being last and the last being first. We know that he's, of course, dealing with the salvation of his people in this parable. And I think there are three things that he points out to his listeners here about the nature of the amazing salvation given to those who truly belong in his gracious kingdom. And first, I think we see clearly here in the message that Almighty God is no man's debtor. Now, I must be careful to explain exactly what I mean by that. I do not mean that God is no man's debtor in the sense that God sees to it that he owes no man anything or that he pays all his debts in full, as if God could amass a debt to anyone or anything else. In other words, this is not a recognition of the idea that man can somehow obligate God to act. Beloved, I've been clear about that, right? We cannot build up merit for ourselves by our righteous deeds. God is no man's debtor. He's not your debtor. He's not my debtor. He owes us nothing. He is never in the position of having to act because of what we have done to somehow merit his action. The only thing that we have merited is the wrath of Almighty God poured out against our sin, not just our natures, Indeed, that's part of it, but I'm talking about the sin that is so prevalent in all of our lives right now. That's what we deserve. That would be justice. We deserve nothing less. So any time that Almighty God acts in love towards us, it's entirely because of His grace It's entirely his generosity to do so. And it's not at all because of anything that you or I have ever done. It is the grace of God lest any man boast. 
and boast we would. That is clear, not only in this parable, but really throughout the entirety of the scriptures. Our only boast in salvation is the Lord Jesus Christ and in him alone. He alone came and humbled himself, placing himself under the law, keeping it perfectly, enduring the the full penalty of that law being poured out against him in our place so that we could be saved through his righteousness. It is the grace of God born out of the love of God for his people and it's never the other way around. That point is made so clear in Paul's letter to the Romans when he talks about God choosing Jacob and not Esau. You're going to have a hard time getting by that verse if you disagree with this. He says in Romans 9, verse 11, though they were not yet born and they had done nothing good or bad, In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call, she was told the older will serve the younger. Jacob have I loved. Esau have I hated. What had Jacob done to deserve this generosity? The grace of Almighty God? Absolutely nothing. Well, maybe God saw that Jacob would do greater things, that he would be more righteous than Esau. Jacob's very name meant deceiver. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. That's the answer that we find in Scripture. And that's one of the points in this parable. Grace is entirely of God and not of man. God is no man's debtor. The second point is, again, a reoccurring theme in the parables, and it's one that we, the people of God, it's that we, the people of God, are of infinitely more value to God than things. God generously pours out his grace upon his people because God cares more for people than things. And he's generous with those whom he chooses to be generous with. All these workers have this in common. They all need work. We can assume that not everyone who is in need of work was picked that day to work, however many were. And it was the prerogative of the landowner, God, to choose whom he would choose and allow them to earn a wage. We see something odd here about this landowner. You see anything about him that seems to stand out as being a little bit odd or a little bit out of place? If you work in business, you see it. If you own your own business, you definitely see it. What is it about this landowner? Well, he doesn't really seem to be all that concerned with a profit, does he? Or so it would seem from a business point of view, this landowner was not operating in a way that could in any way enhance his bottom line. It could not increase his wealth. In business, you can't go around giving away the farm. But in a sense, that is precisely what we see this landowner doing. He's giving a full day's wage. 
to those who simply deserve an hour. But it's his right to do it. He seems to value his workers far more than he values his bottom line. The people are of more value to the landowner and he wants to be generous with them. Not based upon their labor. We're told nothing about their particular labor. We're not told who did better than others. But based upon his own generosity with what belongs to him. It's his to give. What a contrast from the older brother and the parable of the prodigal son. The older brother looked at the wasted inheritance and he raged. He cared far more for things than for the brother that was incredibly lost and who by the grace of Almighty God had had his eyes open and was now found. It's ugly, beloved. We'd all agree with that, right? It's ugly. Yet we see it everywhere, don't we? Even in the church of Jesus Christ? I'm afraid so. We have seen this in the church, haven't we? People who want only their own likes, their own tastes, their own desires to be front and center. People for whom the whole dying to yourself thing never moves from the the realm of theoretical to actual practice. It's what lets us hang on so tightly to our own petty grudges. To keep writing our long lists of wrongs and disappointments at the hands of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And it produces not love and unity and joy, but hate and dissension and disappointment to a going through the motions, just getting things done for the sake of getting them done and of course grumbling when others fail to be like us. Where there's no joy when certain people of the Lord come to repentance. We hold on to their wrongs. We want to point out their shortcomings, all the things that they have squandered in this life and say it's not fair. I've not done those things. I've been faithful for all of these years. I was there when this one was mocking and living in open rebellion. And I was not. I was here suffering under the incredible weight of my own piety, my own ego. Does it sound familiar? It exists, beloved. I've seen it, and I know you have too. Outright disgust at the conversion of one who is not deemed worthy of such an honor. It's heinous. The gospel should fill us with joy when we see it applied in any life, our own or anyone else's anyone what is it that keeps this good news from filling us with joy it's pride and anger and envy in other words living according to the flesh and not according to the spirit the father was filled with joy at the conversion of his rebellious son while the older brother raged and complained and grumbled 
One of the two clearly lived for himself, served in the kingdom of self, ruled his own puny, ridiculous empire of dirt. The other clearly lived with a big sky kingdom mentality. Joy derived from the blessings of others. Can you wrap your mind around that? That's life in the kingdom. Life in the kingdom is joy derived from the blessing of other people. Not just yourself. That's kingdom life. That's ultimately what we've been building towards as we've been talking about what is it like to live Coram Deo? What is it like to live before the face of God in this life? What is it like to live the summary of the Ten Commandments that we read this morning? What are those two great commandments? To love the Lord my God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my strength. And the second is like unto it, to love my neighbor even as I love myself, right? That's how I live for God's glory in the kingdom of God. I get over myself. The workers who were paid their just desserts did the same. Rather than rejoice with the ones who had been the recipients of the master's unbelievable generosity. Beloved, listen to the word of God this morning. There is a reoccurring truth here that simply cannot be missed if we are to endeavor to live before God for the glory of God. There is something we must see, something that we must come to grips with. God is generous with his people. He's generous. He justifies them based upon the merits of Jesus Christ despite the fact that they really are a far, far cry from righteous? We must remember this when we see God blessing those whom we foolishly think do not deserve His blessing. When it comes to the precious gift of justification before God, I want to be clear. The thief on the cross was no different than Timothy. Though Timothy lived knowing the scriptures from the time of his childhood. He was no more deserving of being justified before Almighty God than this wretched thief who only moments before his death had his eyes open to his own condition and the glorious offer of salvation through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, solely because of the grace of Almighty God alone. If you're someone who thinks this way, I want to challenge you this morning to take a moment on this Lord's Day and consider what it is that you truly deserve from the hand of a holy God. And I hope that God will open your eyes and you will gain such perspective as to lead you to real and true repentance and lead you to actively and naturally love your brothers and sisters in Christ even as you celebrate. God's giving Christ in the first place because it's his generosity to do it. That you would be filled with joy over the repentance of the one who is the most undeserving you know. That you will celebrate God's goodness to those whom he's called to be his own. Finally, beloved, in closing, I would just mention to you one more thing that I think we see here about the nature of our salvation clearly in this parable, and that is, it is limited. It's not universal. Do you see that here? 
Note that in verse 30 of chapter 19, Jesus says that many are called. It's not that everyone is called. Many are called. Many that are first will be last and the last first. It's not enough to simply be first. Notice that he does not say that all those who are last will be first. He says many. Many who are last will be first. Brothers and sisters in Christ, let it serve as a warning to those of us who call ourselves part of his body. And I want to be clear, it's not enough to be here. It's not enough. Do you believe that? Let me ask you something. It was not enough for Esau, was it? Esau was a covenant child, circumcised the eighth day, raised under the covenant blessings, raised under the word of God, undoubtedly receiving some of the benefits, but ultimately, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Let us never take comfort from the fact that we are here, that we're doing the right things, that we say the right things, that we hear the right things. It's not enough. It's not enough. I don't care whose books are on your shelf. It's not enough. There is no pride to be gained by being here. But that certainly does not mean that we are those without hope. It's just that our hope is not us. We have a rock-solid hope, not a fickle, wavering hope. We have a rock-solid hope. Our hope is Jesus Christ alone. And praise be to God that our hope does not reside in our own fragile and fickle emotions and desires. Let us take our comfort in the fact that Almighty God, in His great mercy, chooses the unlovable and loves them with an everlasting love. It truly is an amazing salvation. And I pray that it motivates us to genuine, loving, patient, kind, joy-filled service within the kingdom of God. Not expecting what we think is ours by right, but serving out of a sincere love and affection to such an unbelievably generous God. Grateful that he would extend this gracious offer to those of us that are all too aware that the only thing we truly deserve is the penalty that we have worked for and earned. The very wrath of God being poured out against our sin. Beloved, let us serve God together joyfully alongside of one another. Knowing that our common ground really is in our failures, not our successes. Let us worship. Let us bow down and joyfully receive a wage of generosity. Not because of our greatness, but because of the greatness of our Master, the Lord Jesus Christ who has purchased us with the unthinkable price of his own blood and whose greatness shines through despite all of our flaws to the glory of Almighty God. Amen? Let's pray.